Street Smart Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the new innovative concept of real estate investing. No more expensive courses. No more high-priced mentors taking your money and leaving you without ongoing support. Become a full-time seasoned real estate investor by participating with our already successful team members. Now is the time to stop talking about real estate investing and start doing. Take action. Just ask and we will help you. We promise one thing, no BS. For more info, www.streetsmartrei.com. Okay, we're live. Hello, Claire. How are you today? I'm good, Shelley. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm here in uh, kind of a little bit overcast Calgary today, and uh, we're supposed to be warming up for the next few days, so I can't wait to uh, have that happen. <laughs> How oh, is the weather down good. there? Yeah, Ontario is a little bit rainy and drizzly and uh, lots of leaves falling, but um, hey, we don't have any white stuff yet, so I'm happy. There you go. That's a good thing. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I just want to take an opportunity to introduce you to my good friend, Claire Drage. Claire is a mortgage broker with Lionshare Group, who is an affiliation, uh, has an affiliation with the Mortgage Alliance. And she's located just outside of Guelph, close to the, the Toronto area. And Claire and I have known each other for, I think, four or five years now. We've been uh, working together in a number of different capacities. And she, you know, both of us do training and kind of coaching with people. And uh, we thought it would be a good opportunity today to come and talk a little bit about, you know, Claire and some of the experiences she has and some things that she can share with uh, those of you that are participating who are, you know, real estate investors here in Canada. Excuse me, I've got a bit of a cold, so I'm um, I'll be drinking lots of water as we go forward here. But uh, so share, you know, if you have uh, anything you'd like to add to that, Claire, about you know a little bit about your business. Can we talk a little bit about yourself and and who yeah, you are? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you can probably tell by the accent that um, originally from the UK, I actually moved to Spain back in oh, I guess it was '87, the same year I got married. And um, with my husband, so he did come with me. And um, in Spain, we had property management and real estate. We managed about 144 units for um, for uh, holidaymakers, uh, mainly short-term lets, not long-term lets. Mm -hmm. And um, after after 11 years living on a very small island, we moved to Canada. So we actually arrived in our, in Calgary. So Alberta was our home for the first sort of six or seven years. And um, I've always kind of been in, you know, a, a, an entrepreneur involved in real estate somehow. And my first sort of foray into borrowing or lending money was as a mortgage broker, actually in Alberta. So I've kind of been in the mortgage brokering lending industry uh, since arriving in Canada in 98. And then basically... Um, you know, in the last few years, really expanded my team of mortgage brokers, really focused on specific real estate investor challenges that we have. You know, when we have large portfolios or, you know, we've decided to give up that full time job. Really, I really enjoyed the creative side of finding access to unlimited cash using other people's money. And that's exactly. kind of a bit about me. 
Okay, great. That's great. Now, my understanding, uh, Claire, is that you can work with investors from across the country. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it is. So, well, yes and no. So, technically, yes. Uh, you know, investors, we're not buying necessarily in our backyard. We're looking where there's opportunity in all sorts of markets right across the countries. A country. There are certain markets that I choose either not to finance in from a real estate investor perspective. There's also going to be some areas where, for example, Quebec. Quebec is an amazing province. However, no parlez-vous français. So that's the limit to my French. So rather right. than, um, you know, try and be an expert in an area when I'm not really, I will absolutely refer out to some key professionals I know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, really, the, the sky's the limit. Okay. Well, and that's a very good point. So um, if there's something that doesn't accommodate you can't accommodate because of language, et cetera. You do have people in your database that you can draw upon across the country, I would assume. Absolutely. I've always felt as a, you know, as mortgage brokers, our training and education is all the same. We all go through the same course, which, to be honest, doesn't really teach us how to be creative or do anything other than the regular cookie cutter financing I have kind of chosen to expand into the real estate investor world because it's a personal passion of mine. Uh, but at the same time, it's really important as any mortgage broker recognizes their limitations. So, for example, I know I'm really good at large portfolios, sophisticated investors, creative access to cash, multifamily, up to 20 doors and then about two million purchase price. But if I get outside any of the other asset classes, what I've decided to do is really link um, myself up with other mortgage professionals that specialize in that area. Because as a good mortgage broker, you can't possibly do everything at the best of your ability. And I don't want any client to learn, you know, how, how to get financing on a different asset class based on the fact that I don't know how to do it and we're going to learn together. I would rather refer that out and choose to do that learning on my own time, but not at the cost of the client. So I think it's kind of important that you know what you know and you know when it's okay to refer it out to another specialist. Okay. So, I mean, that's very important because then as an investor, if I go to you um, as part of my power team members, I know that if you can't get it done, you have somebody that can get it done for me. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, it's it's so important to be able to tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. So a good mortgage broker in the first sort of two or three questions specifically on the property and the investor will have a good idea of whether they can do the deal or not or what the potential challenges might be. Right. Right. Oh, that's very important. Now, if you're uh, taking on a new client, new investors coming to you, and they've heard about you through this webinar, through the organization here, Street Smart uh, Investing, then uh, do you have other people you can refer them to for references so that they, you know, become more comfortable if they need to with you and your expertise? Absolutely. I've got so many clients that would be more than happy to provide references. Also, I think that there is, especially with technology, there's now so much 
due diligence we can do. Like I even say to a potential client, just Google my name. See, see what comes up. Um, you know, I have multiple reviews, so there's nothing better than seeing all those online reviews of other fellow investors and clients. But I think it's important to make sure that your mortgage broker is really comfortable saying, hey, yeah, here is four of my clients. Give them a call. And recent clients, not your mum, your dad, your brother, you know, Uncle Bob or the local, you know, uh, coffee shop owner. You know, it's got to be a, a legitimate reference source. Just like okay. as an investor, it's not the current landlord you want to want a um, a reference from. It's the one before, right? Exactly. Exactly. No, that's a very good point. Very good. Well, that's good because that will make, you know, some of the people feel a little more comfortable, help with their due diligence and setting up their power team. You know, it takes a little while to build a team. So that's great. That's awesome. Like, How many uh, real estate investors would you be working with at, at this time? So a lot. So my database is about four and a half thousand right now. And I would probably say about 65 percent of them are real estate investors. It's really wow. hard to kind of figure out exactly how many today because each of my clients might be in a specific phase of their journey to invest in real estate. Some are just starting out where they're kind of figuring out what is their borrowing power, what is their clear strategy. Is it quick cash, cash flow, or portfolio income? You know, And so therefore they might well be uh, I would say stuck because that's the wrong wrong word, but really working on their due diligence before they pull the trigger, before they actually start to actively be looking at properties, putting offers in and moving forward. And then you've got right. the far extreme where I probably have about seven or eight clients right now that I'm doing a mortgage for them or getting financing for them once every two months or even once a month, you know, I have a number of clients where I might be doing two or three a month of different financing structures based on their more aggressive growth in their portfolio. Okay, great. Um, well, would you say too then, for some of our uh, investors that are involved here may or may not have gotten a mortgage before as an investor for an, uh, an investment property, um, are you and your team available to help kind of with the education process of how they should move through that whole mortgage approval and finalization process? Because it can be somewhat daunting if you've only bought your own home, you know, 10 years ago, and now you're thrown into buying a you know, house with a basement suite or something. Absolutely. And I think that you know, a majority of the work should be done up front with really figuring out a complete real estate investment financing plan strategy. We call it our REIFP. And what we do with what we do with clients is create it's basically like an 18 page report. Because when you're when you're really starting out, you need to truly understand your cost of funds. And we have a series of questions we ask initially, such as you know, what's your number one priority to invest in real estate? Is it, you know, cash flow? Is it quick cash? You know, what's your end goal? When do you want to quit your job? How many properties do you want to buy in the next 30 days, 90 days and five years? Is it corporate name? Is it personal name? Looking at their assets and their net worth. There are so many different, you know, um, potential options for financing that we want to create a true financing plan. 
So this 18-page report that we create for our clients, it is, there is some work that they have to do up front, unfortunately, which is send in a poo load of paperwork, employment letters and pay stubs and tax returns and mortgage statements, etc. But once that paperwork's in to us, we really want to create that solid report. Here's why. If an investor says to me, you know, I want to buy five properties in the next two years, we need to strategically place the mortgages with the right lenders in the right order so they don't get capped out too soon. So, for example, if they want to purchase in a corporate name, they already own three rentals and their principal and a cottage, then I know that Bank A will only do one more. But Bank B will do up to 10 properties. Bank C will do 15 doors. So we don't want to go to Bank C that does 15 doors first because then we've lost the opportunity to get financing on the first one with Bank A. So it's kind of, I know it's a long way of me answering that question, but I won't lie to you, sometimes it's not about best rate. It's about the strategic placement of mortgages with the right lenders so you don't get capped out too soon. So you can continue to grow your portfolio because there's nothing worse than finding out because you went to your own bank first who is just going to give you your own bank's options and they don't really care about where else you place your financing. You're not you could get capped out much sooner than you thought and have your wealth growth plans halted. Right. And I think that is so important because when I got going on this business, uh, we, we we had a couple mortgage brokers that helped us with that. And uh, as a result, I was able to grow very, you know, substantially in a very short period of time. Without that good um, advice, though, I would not have been where I was. And with the very first mortgage broker I started with, didn't have that kind of experience. So I think it's so valuable that what you just talked about, that you're giving them that big picture. That really is something that they need with their, as part of their team as they're going forward. Um, can you, um, can you give an example of, um, you know, how many transactions you've done over the last, you know, say six months that are specific to investors, just to give us an idea of kind of the scope of your business? So I, I personally fund between, um, you know, 18 to 25 mortgages a month. And I would say at least 15 to 17 of those are for real estate investors. Now, they could well be real estate investors buying a single family, you know, rental or rent to own. It could be a real estate investor that's doing, we're doing a private first mortgage. Then we're doing a hard money loan for the renovations because it's a buy and flip. So definitely a big mix of different types of financing. Sometimes it's major bank, sometimes it's non-bank, sometimes it's my own money, because I, I do loan out my own funds as well. I, I kind of believe in practicing what you preach. <laughs> okay, great. No, that's excellent. Um, you know, that I think that's very important, that because you have access to all those different kinds of funds, including your own personal funds, that uh, gives a well-rounded portfolio to those investors who are coming to work with you. So that's great. It's one of those uh, things that um, one thing that there are some some mortgage brokers might not be happy with what I'm, what I'm about to say, but I believe in being like really honest and upfront. 
So there are there are four major banks that da actually don't embrace the benefits of mortgage brokers working with them. Um, most of most investors will probably know who they are. I truly believe in if they offer the right product and the right structure for an investor, that I do actually work with them as well. So it's really important. Sometimes these these transactions I'm doing on a monthly basis might not be with the regular mortgage type mortgage broker type lenders. They're pretty much with any lender right across the country. And I think that's key. You kind of need someone who isn't frightened of working with, you know, the blue blank bank with a line on their logo. Um, or, you know, another other ones that there's four others that we won't name. Some one of them has grocery points. Um, but the fact is they could provide options for our real estate investors and we don't want to get people capped out too soon. Right. And that's a very good point. A very good point. And um, so sometimes, though, as a mortgage broker, um, sometimes people don't want to hear what you have to tell them. And sometimes they don't always want to give you all the information that, you know, you need in order to help them be successful for one reason or another. Uh, do you have any examples of how you work with people in those situations to help them, you know, understand the importance and feel more comfortable in giving that information well yes um you know it comes down to trust it, it really is anyone that i mean we we ask for all sorts of information i mean we ask for everything we know where you know where what you spend on your credit card and as a mortgage broker we ask for such personal information and of course, naturally, it's confidential and I'm licensed with the government. So there's lots of legislation to make sure that we're protecting the consumer. Um, I think the key thing is with any service provider, whether it's your own bank or whether it is a mortgage broker, you've got to feel comfortable that the information you give over is going to be used ethically and honestly and is going to result in you getting the financing that you, you need. Um, what I really focus on is showing my clients the end result first. So I will send a sample of that 80-page real estate investment financing plan to everyone with the application form and list of documents that we need. So they can really see this is what you're going to get if you're comfortable providing us with all your information. You know, things like getting T1 generals and copies of leases, property tax statements, mortgage statements, etc. I really, I'm only asking for that information to make sure it's accurate. 92% of the time, what you fill in on an application form is not going to be 100% accurate. So, you know, I mean, you ask someone, how much do you make? What's your salary? Oh, it's about 58,000. Well, about 58,000 could be 52 or 62. Um, I can't guess if I, I could. Yeah, sure. You're fine. Go shopping. Go buy properties. And then we'll deal with the repercussions later. I don't want that. I never have last minute panics, issues with the lender pulling out because I took my client's word for it and couldn't validate with third party paperwork. So I do spend quite a bit of time showing my clients the end result and then we customize it to them. But also... It's also important that the client knows why. Why do I need a T1 general? Well, you know what? There could be some income we pull out 
that other your bank's not even using to help you qualify for more. We might be able to strategically look at your future filing for taxes to allow you to quit that job. But let's make sure that we can show some sufficient income so you continue to qualify for the cheapest available you know, funds that you continue to grow your portfolio. So you know, I won't lie to you, I will say to clients, hey, you know, after I've shown them an example, they've Googled me, they've spoken to references, um, hopefully I've extolled some expertise and some pro bono advice up front, like should it be corporate name or personal name, uh, short term, long term, really have lots of questions about their overall strategy as opposed to what's your date of birth, what's your social insurance number. I tend to find once I've done that, the, the comfort level, the confidence is there that they feel they feel okay providing the information. And if they aren't at that point, you know what? I have to put their file on hold. I won't be the broker that says, you're fine without being a thousand percent sure that you actually are. Right. Okay, great. Well, that's great. It's good to know that you have a mortgage broker that can do that for you. And I wish I would have met you a lot sooner in my investing career, let me tell you, because um, I did become a mortgage broker a couple of years later because I got very frustrated with trying to sometimes work within the industry and not understand it. But you, as an investor, you don't have to be a mortgage broker to do that. You just need to have a good person like Claire on your team and you're, you're good to go <laughs> as you move forward. So, yeah. <laughs> do you invest in any uh, properties yourself in Canada now that you're living here? Yeah, yeah. So, yes and no. So, yes, um, I have done in the past, but not anymore. And I'll tell you why. So, I focused on um, cash flowing properties and also doing joint ventures on rent to own. Um, mm -hmm. I also found that, so that's what I started doing. Uh, bearing in mind, I had had 11 years in Spain with property management. So I won't lie to you, mm -hmm. 11 years of managing 144 properties, you know, that, you know, uh, I wouldn't say landlord, because if you have a good property management company, then it's not that bad being a landlord. But I guess we had such a large portfolio, I was ready to maybe kick back a bit and let my mm -hmm. money make me money instead. So mm -hmm. in the last seven years, I have focused on uh, private lending. So I use my RSP and my TFSA as well as my own cash and my own borrowing power. And I borrow money to make money and I loan it out as a private lender and hard money lender. Okay, that's great. So if anyone listening today has a TFSA or RSPs that they might want to consider becoming a hard money lender themselves, um, would they be able to come to you and get some advice on how to do that? And how would you handle that? Absolutely. So the first thing we want to do is really look at their overall net worth, uh, their age and their wealth growth strategy plan. You know, if someone comes to me and they're, you know, 68 years old and they have $40,000 in RSP and they don't have any other savings, you know, we're not necessarily going to feel comfortable putting them into private lending or hard money lending when that's all they have we might well want to be focusing on other strategies such as quick cash. So wholesaling, assignments, rent to own, creating a bigger capital pool because, you know, like anything, when you borrow money to make money, you've one, got to make money, and two, be able to pay back the money you borrowed. So okay. it's really important that we look at the whole 
risk tolerance of the investor, exactly how much they have. I mean, I'll give you an example. I had a client come to see me earlier in the week who had $420,000 in his, a combination of a lira and a RSP. And disappointed at the returns and, you know, we, we spent quite a bit of time talking about taking control of that money, you know, self-directing it. But what we did is we really dissected the content of both the, the lira and the RSP and we decided to start with just 100,000. So transferring 100,000 out from the current money manager into a self-directed trustee so that we can then loan that out in private money. So we didn't kind of, I'm not going to run in and go, give me all your money and we'll loan it all out in mortgages. We're really going to look at diversification. Um, at when do you need the money back? You know, do you have a little bit of a cushion yourself? So if your car broke down or one of your properties needed, you know, some work doing on it, we don't want to make sure you're down to your last five cents in your bank account. So it, I won't lie to you, there's not really a black and white answer to that question other than Let's look at the investor. Let's really talk about the risk, the rewards, the advantages, the disadvantages, the next steps. And, you know, I give there's a lot of material I ask my investors to read first. So they have a good idea of all the pros and cons. My my biggest challenge, I'll be honest with you, is a lot of investors are going, how did I not hear about this before? How did why didn't anyone tell me I could take my lira, who someone told me was locked in and I couldn't touch it, because I can loan that out in mortgages and actually invest in real estate without being the landlord. They have no clue. So sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it comes down to just educating that no one's going to tell you, like the bank's not going to tell you how to be the bank, because duh, then you're potentially taking business away from them. Um, you know, your financial plan is not going to tell you how to put your money somewhere else other than with right. their portfolio of funds. And, you know, it all comes down to having strong, strong underwriting of the borrower, you know, a great trustee to look after the administration of the mortgages and a great real estate lawyer to bring all the pieces together and then just watch the bank account grow. It's awesome. Right. Right. That sounds great. And, you know, that is very much so. When I got uh, into this business and I found out that I could start lending out my RSP portfolio, uh, it was such a great opportunity for me. I hadn't even considered that. Now, conversely, as well, you also help investors borrow other people's RSPs and show them how they can do that, too. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, there is um, there's actually that's what I was grabbing. There's actually a great book. I know you're going to see a reflection of this. This is called The RSP Secret by Greg um, Hasbrick. It's um, or Habstrit, I should say, H-A-B-S-T-R-I-T-T. This is this is an amazing book. So if, usually, first of all, I'll give this to my clients and say, read this um, mm -hmm. after they've got really mad and thrown it across the room when they realize how much money they've thrown away in their RSPs. <laughs> we kind of calm them down a bit and talk about next steps. And so, you know, when we look at having access to being able to borrow money as, as well as access to RSPs, there's always a great opportunity. If you have a couple of investors, that both have RSPs and they're tied up, don't want to cash them out and pay the withholding tax, there's an opportunity to create a joint venture or a synergy between parties to get access to that RSP money. Um, again, you're borrowing to make money. Mm -hmm. 
That's perfect. That's perfect. Now, in talking about that, that's only one way that investors can use to help them grow their portfolio. Um, what is your experience with some of the other uh, ways of doing things, like a vendor take back? Oh, I love vendor take backs. So um, we, we always want to look at, whenever we're looking at a scenario, we really want to be very strategic on being able to borrow as much money as possible so without over leveraging, but also using creative financing options. So venture take backs used to be hugely popular, maybe back 50, 20 years ago. Uh, they're really popular when it's buying sort of commercial properties. And, but a lot of people have forgotten about them and they can be a great investment strategy. Um, maybe I can share an example with you of a discussion I was having with an investor only this week. So he's purchasing, yeah, he's purchasing a mixed use. So a mixed use property, it's got three residential units upstairs and then downstairs is a commercial unit. He actually intends to uh, move his own business into the retail commercial component downstairs. And then of course the rental income from the three upstairs unit, upstairs units is going to help support, you know, the purchase. So it's a bit of a kind of buying it for an investment purposes, but also to put his own business in there as well. So, you know, it looks great. Um, now, first of all, when we look at mixed use uh, properties or commercial asset class, we first of all have to look at the property first. Then we kind of worry about the borrower covenant. So we look at the property. So with this particular property, there's a number of challenges with it. One is it's in a very, very small town, population under 8,000. Hmm. So, of course, many banks and lenders are going, eh, eh, too small a base. So very, very small town in Ontario. The second challenge is the purchase price is 250000 That's actually too small for a lot of lenders. You know, they don't get out of bed for more than four, less than 400000 So... That can be a challenge. Also, um, obviously, one of the the ground unit, the retail unit's empty, and it's been empty for two years. So lenders kind of going, okay, if the borrower who puts their own business in there isn't successful, then there is a higher, you know, probability of you know uh, default. So we've got small mortgage amount, we've got small town, and you know, mixed use property. It's been on the market for about six months, so marketability is pretty low. So there's obviously not many people go rushing to this small town to buy mixed-use commercial properties. So we've got those challenges with the property. So now let's look at the borrower. Borrower is moving his business he's only had for nine months from 800 miles away. He does not have an online presence for his business. So it's not like I can say to the lender, you know, 60% of his revenue is online orders. So therefore moving to this other town is not going to make any difference. You know, this client's actually moving his business in the hope that it improves his business, but moving into a town that's got a small population base. So, you know, already I've got challenges with the borrower. He only has 10% down payment and that's being borrowed from a friend. So it's not even his own money. So we have, so a low net worth borrower, low down payment. We have a unique property in a very small town with a small mortgage amount. 
So now you combine those together and it's like, like <laughs> there are some challenges. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I spent some time going through with the client sort of three potential options. So option number one is I pulled a purview report. That's a report that's exclusive for mortgage brokers and agents. And it told me who the current owner is, what they paid for the property only a year and a half ago, which was 170,000. So they paid 170 for it a year and a half ago and are trying to sell it for 250 now. Hmm. So we, I know that there's no debt on the property. So it's free and clear. There's no mortgage. There's no debt. So based on that information, there's a number of question marks come up. The first one is 18 months ago, it was worth 170 because that's what you paid for it. Uh, so what have you done to the building in the last year and a half to make it worth $80,000 more? And I'm talking a 50% increase in value. You know, if it was worth a million and it's gone up by 70,000 or 80,000, not a problem. But we're talking 170 to 250 in 18 months. That's a big chunk in a small town that has very flat market, real estate market in the last five years. Mm -hmm. So um, obviously that's questions about what has been done to the building. Um, it actually turns out nothing. So either this seller is on crack or is just, I don't know, <laughs> hoping there is some idiot from Toronto that's going to run up to this small town and buy this building. Um, so I said, okay, you've got to ask for a vendor. So number one, vendor take back. So negotiate with the vendor. I provided the, my client with all the various strategies to pitch the vendor take back. But the biggest thing being the capital gains and benefits for the seller by having them deferred. So to so try and get a 90% vendor take back for a five year fixed term, interest only payments with the option to prepay early and maybe get a credit, um, but also potentially do a two offer approach. So offer number one, maybe ask, offer 240 with a 90% vendor take back and you can close next week. So come next Friday, he's no longer a landlord, no longer dealing with the tenants. He can be on a beach somewhere, 90% financing and he's got 10,000 below asking price. Second offer is way lower so maybe it's like 220, 210, no vendor take back, but you're going to close in 90 days. So really by presenting two offers at the same time, you kind of can get a better gauge of how motivated the seller really is. Is it because he really wants every single penny he can and he'll wait for the buyer? Or is he really tired of being a landlord and just wants to get out of that small town himself? We kind of really don't know what the motivation is. So option one, Two offers, one with vendor take back, one without. Second option was, of course, private financing. We could probably do 90% loan to value with a reverse assignment of rents uh, with a private lender, probably looking at 7 to 8% interest rates. Um, it would be higher risk, but my concern would be if you start with private financing, nothing's going to change with this location or the value that's going to ever make this building bankable. So therefore, with this borrower, so therefore this borrower has got to be prepared to be paying these rates for the next five years, you know, because of the type of 
property and the borrower. And then option number three is rent to own. Is, you know, do a rent to own on this mixed use commercial property. So after about 20 minutes, we had these three strategies, you know, figured out. Now, I will say I'm not a realtor. So, of course, I'm figuring out how to finance this. Knowing that option one and two, this client won't need me. I'm providing pro bono advice for that client to get vendor financing where they won't need a mortgage broker or a rent to own where they won't need a mortgage broker at this point. Um, so it was kind of like a, I know it's a long winded way of me answering that question about vendor take backs, but I could see here there was an opportunity. We did our research and we had a three pronged approach to strategically try and acquire that property that met my client's needs, knowing the challenges in the first five minutes of the discussion. Well, like I hope everybody was really engaged in listening to that. And I'm glad that we're taping that for other people who weren't able to come today that are, have gotten involved. Because Claire just went through such a good uh, analysis of what she, you know, the value she can bring and the ideas that she brought there to the table to help with that particular scenario. That was excellent, excellent example. Now, along with that then too, as you're working with your clients, can you help them with calculating things like the future value and rental income and stuff like that if they're if they need a little bit of assistance there? Um, yes and no. So <laughs> I say yes, um, I will by providing some key resources and giving them some guidance on uh, who to ask them the right questions. Um, and I then say no because technically I'm not licensed as a realtor. So me sort of commenting on value, you know, giving them any sort of indication of value i've got to rely on the tools i have access to 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 give that data so whether it's cmhc's housing market um portal uh, whether it is a purview report or the geo warehouse or pull title uh, looking at historical sales going to uh, padmapper.com i think it is or .ca one of them to look at available rentals right now as well as, of course, realtor.ca. I'm going to use those tools in my initial research to give some indication of where I think things might be. But, you know, when it comes to sort of actually determining value, I'll be honest with you, there is really is only one solid way of getting, I wouldn't say a true value, but a more non-partisan approach to evaluation of a property. And that's through a licensed appraiser. Someone that is just paid four or five hundred bucks to go into the property and determine value is not biased based on getting paid to do a mortgage or to sell, you know, a commission from a realtor. You know, it really is a non, you know, partisan report that don't get me wrong. Sometimes we don't agree with the value that comes out, but it's really hard to um it's, it's really hard for me to say, okay, I don't think that property is worth that much. I've really got to rely on these third-party sources to do it. We'll have a discussion about ranges and provide them with some information so they can digest it. Um, I also think, especially with real estate investors, it's important that they, what's the word? I'll provide them with the purview. We'll go through PadMapper together. We'll look at comparable sales together. And then ultimately, my question will be, what do you think? How are you feeling about the value and marketability of this property? 
Because I think it's also important that um, an investor can make that decision themselves based on all the data they're provided, as opposed to you know just relying on just the mortgage broker or just the realtor's opinion, that they're able to build their own final opinion based on data from all areas. Okay, great. You know, I, I am so impressed, uh, Claire, with the level of uh, expertise that you have. Uh, you know, the fact that you have been an investor yourself and now a mortgage broker, just the value you can add to coming to the table with a, an investor, especially someone new getting started in this business, it's just blowing me away, you know, what you'll do and what you help to help them. I think that's awesome. Now, one of the other um, things I wanted to ask you about, too, was, you know, one of the challenges that we tend to get now as investors is the whole, you know, mortgages within a corporation. And, uh, and some of the investors that are here may or may not understand, uh, you know, how to set up a corporate structure to their advantage. Is that something that you can also add value to when you're talking to uh, your clients? Absolutely. It's one of the key questions I'm always going to ask. Um, personal name or corporate name, just to get an idea of whether they've already gone down the route of setting up their single or multi-tier corporate structure. There really are so many things to consider when it comes to personal name or corporate name. Of course, the primary two things are going to be asset protection. So if you have no assets, there isn't much to protect. So if you're a brand new investor, and you have no assets, it might not be as important as it is when you do your 10th property and you've got lots of assets. The second thing is, you know, the tax benefits. So I don't think it's fair to say, oh, every investor must put in a corporate name. Everyone's situation is different. If it's a husband and wife team, are they going to do two separate corporations so they can improve their borrowing power? Uh, do they have dependents? Do they have previous um, uh, dependents from previous relationships? You know, do they already have, have they already maximized all of their tax benefits? You know, what is their short term and long term? Are they buying just one property and no more versus going to buy three to five in the next 10 years? There's so many questions to ask. Um, in fact, I have like 20 questions that I'll send my clients for them to really you know, think about how they want to structure. Because there's a number of things. As an investor, of course, the ideal scenario, corporate name. But you have to be prepared that there could be a trade-off. So that trade-off is you might not have as many lenders to pick from that will allow you to buy a single family home or a duplex or a fourplex in a corporate name and get residential underwriting rates and terms and conditions. So there often isn't as many lenders to pick from, uh, which can be a little bit frustrating for some, but there's still more than enough. Typically, you can do about 15 doors in a corporate name with major banks before you start to get like, you have to really go into commercial borrowing, you know, maybe blanket mortgages or syndicates to raise funds, privates even. But again, it also depends on your strategy. If you're doing buy flips, um, you know, the liability might be more important than the tax benefits. You know, uh, so putting in a corporate name because you've got multiple investors or joint venture partners might be more beneficial. 
if you're a professional, you might have a family trust already set up that we can kind of bear trust link through to potentially use that for asset protection instead. Um, so I guess long-winded answer is, first of all, we've got to figure out, is it right for you? Um, you'll speak to your lawyer who's going to give you a legal opinion. You'll speak to your accountant or give you a tax opinion. And then your finance specialist will give you a financing opinion. Again, kind of like the other example, as an investor, you've got to take all of those three things into consideration and decide what's right for you and your family. Okay, great. Great. That's awesome. Um, you know, right now there there tend to be a little challenge with that. And some some organizations don't really promote a lot about corporate structure and asset protection. And so, you know, we always, myself, whenever I'm talking to someone, that's one of the things I want to make sure they take mm -hmm. a look at. So it's really good to work with a broker that understands that whole process as well, such as yourself. Um, can you give us an example of, you know, a really tough deal that you've had, you know, in the, you know, recently and how you kind of got over the challenges of getting them financing um, for that particular client? Yes, absolutely. Um, I guess almost the example that I showed before about the, the guy buying the, the, the mixed juice in the small town is, is probably a great example. Um, sometimes the biggest challenge with any underwriting is every lender, whether it's a major bank, a non-bank, a equity lender, every single lender has a different formula when they calculate your debt servicing ratios. So basically how much can you afford to borrow? When you have a rental property that you're buying and or you already own rental properties, everyone has, a, again, a different formula. So some lenders will do an add back, some will do an offset, some will look at your surplus or deficit on your tax return and use that. Some will only use half of the rental income or 80%, some will, you know, not allow you to, won't even give you a mortgage on an investment property because you don't own a principal home yet. Or because you don't own a principal home, they want to add a thousand bucks a month as a shelter cost to your qualifying. So whenever we come across, so there's been many examples, especially recently where there has been changes in legislation. And unfortunately, there's a bit more to come where lenders are getting a bit pickier when it comes to investors. So I had a, a, a recent file um, where client was purchasing a triplex. So when you're purchasing a triplex, if it's owner occupied, you can actually purchase it with 10% down. So as long as you live in one unit and you rent out the other two, you can purchase it with 10% down. So this particular investor had come to me and said, you know, I'm going to live in the property. I'm going to live in one unit and rent out the other two. Awesome. Got all the qualifying done. Um, and when I say got all the qualifying done, asked for all the paperwork. So the client's sending through the paperwork and something's not adding up. He's buying a owner-occupied triplex about 800 miles away from where he works. So, of course, the lender is going to be going, well, you know, how can he, you know, work in Trump in Edmonton and he's buying a triplex in, 
I know, Lethbridge. He's not going to commute each day and he can't, he doesn't have a, a job that he can work remotely. And he's not in the patch, so it's not like he's off, you know, in the field and then back again. So it's not going to make sense to the lender at all. It actually turns out he has no intention of living in it, was just trying to purchase the property with 10% down. That's mortgage fraud. If you're going to pretend you're going to live into one unit, it's mortgage fraud. And one, a good mortgage broker will have zero to do with that. But the reality is he didn't need to commit mortgage fraud to make that deal happen. He only had 10% down. So what we did instead is we did it as a proper rental. It's a three units, triplex. It's going to be rented out. He's going to, we, we did a first mortgage to 80% loan to value. And then we did a second mortgage for 10%. He's, uh, he had a friend of his that actually had some RSP money that wanted to invest with him. So we actually used his friend's RSP and self-directed in a mortgage onto his buddy's property. So the, 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 the beauty of that was first and second mortgage, he could do it legally. No one's lying. He didn't have to lie to his lawyer or CRA. You're going to get caught eventually. So just don't lie. Be upfront and honest and we'll find a way to finance it. He avoided the CMHC premium. He didn't ruin his opportunity to actually buy a proper principal home with 5% down in the future. Because the minute you kind of pretend and then you actually want to buy one, you might mess yourself up and really, you know, ruin your opportunity to do that later. So basically trying to do it under the radar, let's pretend. And the bottom line is, it's like, nope, we're doing this properly. First and second combination, avoid the CMHC premium. And his actual cost of funds came out. I think it was going to cost him $5 more the way I had structured it. But I can sleep at night and he can sleep at night knowing he's done it properly. Okay, great, great. Great advice to everybody that's listening to as they're going forward. Because, you know, sometimes it could, everyone's going to run into those situations that, you know, look like a good opportunity and you need to know how to structure it the proper way. Um, now, Claire, you must be extremely busy. Uh, with all the stuff that you're talking about, because you do go really well, way and above and beyond for your clients. Is it just you and your team or do you have some other person that can help you so you're not, you know, staying all day yeah. at the office? <laughs> <laughs> not sleeping here. Um, yes. yes, I do. I'm, I'm really, really lucky. So for my own mortgage business, I have, um, I have three underwriters that work for me, as well as an admin uh, funder, if you like. And then I have my receptionist and my team trainer. But basically, my three underwriters, two of them are experienced and been trained specifically with real estate investors. So I kind of see myself as the client relationship manager, having that, having the consultations to talk sort of strategic, uh, to talk about different strategies, cash flow analysis, KPI on different acquisitions, creating that real estate investment financing plan. Once we've got that plan in place, my underwriters support me with, you know, bugging you for paperwork and liaising with the realtors and the lawyers on closing. Uh, they draft and prepare all my paperwork for me. So I probably spend about two hours a day uh, proofreading, uh, approving and going through paperwork. And then the rest of the time is consultation to help people from a strategic perspective 
because my amazing staff can handle the underwriting and all that boring paperwork and they'll help help with that smooth process okay great great so it's good to know that there's a team that can help you you're not just you know in it by yourself kind of thing that's awesome now what about um, you know sometimes as we're going along as real estate investors um, we're working with other power team members that don't quite understand the vision of where we're going as a real estate investor um, can you also come in and help some of our investors you know with providing a little bit of support to talk to the other the other team members Absolutely. I, in fact, one of the yeah. questions I ask my investors is, you know, along with the list of paperwork is, you know, would you like to hook me up with the rest of your power team members? Um, I kind of, there's your inner circle of power team members. You know, it's going to be, you know, your mentor, your realtor, obviously your finance specialist, maybe your lawyer, accountant to a certain, these, you know, these people that are involved in almost every transaction that you that you have. And it's really important that they're all on the same page. So I always say to my investors, I'm more than happy to talk to your realtor, for example. Realtors tend to be the biggest challenge. Um, so when you find a good one, don't mess with that relationship. Keep them. Um, exactly. In my experience, there's been two types of, of realtors. Uh, there is the one that, um, uh, that really doesn't give a hoot what I say doesn't give a hoot what the borrower's saying they just they're transaction based just buy this property it's a good deal and then they're off to the next shiny penny or client um then there's the other realtor who maybe isn't as experienced with real estate investors but has the desire and the willingness to learn and it's like a sponge i love working with those realtors because they're they're hungry not hungry for business in a bad way but they're hungry for knowledge they want to differentiate themselves from the other 30,000 realtors doing the same thing out there and just like I like to as a mortgage broker so when you find one that might be new might not be experienced with investors but they're prepared to learn and you know listen and and really do their research and and help and support I am more than happy to have them on every single conference call with my clients to have discussions with them. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of a bad realtor. <laughs> uh, okay. um, I was working with a real estate investor. We created a real estate investment financing plan. A real estate investor goes off, purchases a, a single family home. So single family properties, if you're buying in a market that's hot, then you're competing with regular homeowners and home buyers. Single family, in the majority of cases, not all, doesn't cash flow. Uh, you really are relying on capital appreciation, mortgage pay down, and you know, obviously hoping it does cash flow and there's no other expenses. If it's a single family rent to own, that's a whole different thing and they're amazing. But usually your traditional single family home renting for $1,500, you know, the minute it needs some maintenance, your cash flows out the window. So this investor uh, was working with a realtor who had no interest in engaging with me, no interest in talking to me at all, was like, well, I'll send your broker the information when she needs it. I'm like, okay. Um, so I back off a bit. And go, okay, I'll do my financing. <laughs> 
So unfortunately, this real estate investor was, um, I won't say convinced. It doesn't matter which way you say it. Bottom line is he went multiple offers on a single family home and paid $40,000 above list price. And he went firm. Oh, my gosh. No conditions, nothing. No home inspection, no appraisal report, no nothing. So um, this would have been back in May or June when the market was like, where it was like, oh, my home's gone up by another thousand bucks. You know, yes. just the, by the time you looked at your watch. Now, wow. so of course he's gone in firm, which we never recommend. We always say, you know, you've got, we've got to have condition of financing just to make sure you're paying what the property's worth as a minimum with yes. that appraisal report I mentioned earlier. Anyway, long and short of it, um, I looked at the listing, the MLS listing, and this home is beautiful. It's been upgraded. It's got a brand new patio and a deck, and you know, it's it's got beautiful hardwood flooring. Like it's amazing. Like it's too good for a rental. Like it's oh my it's, gosh, it's beautiful granite countertops and it's gorgeous. If, I would want to live in it. I'm like, I have some people that would want to move in. Um, yeah. So paying over list, um, and of course, it really is too good to be a rental. It's over-renovated. It's just too nice. Anyway, bottom line is uh, appraisal came in $30,000 less than you paid for it. So shocking. I, shocking. So, of course, client <laughs> is client is always going to, you know, I always say don't shoot the messenger. But ultimately, I'm the one on the phone that's just telling you you've paid thirty thousand more for this property, and there's nothing I can do. So, right. but there is something I can do, which is I reached out to the realtor and I asked the realtor, "Can you give me some ammunition? Can you give me comparable sales? All the market research you did when our client, our mutual client, purchased this property for forty thousand above list." So I can take that information and go back to my appraiser and see if we can bump up the value of it. So I'm asking for a lot of, you know, uh, you know, I'm basically asking the realtor to do their damn job. I'm sorry, but yeah. give me information to justify why you were okay this client paying this so much over list. So the realtor comes back with five comparables. Only one of them was above list price. Not purchase price, list price. Only one. So I'm like, stupid idiot. How can you give me all these comparables below list price? You know, not below purchase price, below list price. And then the one that was above uh, uh, list price but was still 20000 lower than purchase price, it had um, a fully finished basement. It had a, had a double attached garage. It had a hot tub for what it's worth. It was a bigger lot. So it was a way bigger, it wasn't even a comparable. So, you know, that's a bad realtor who's basically just throwing stuff on an email in the hope that, what, I'm going to disappear and suddenly, magically, the property is going to be worth more. So, um, unfortunately, that client is obviously first property, burnt so bad by bad, um, well, just relying on one set of data and um, and the property that was three months ago he closed um, I'm not sure if it's rented yet but he was really struggling to get the market rents and get, get decent tenants because it's beautiful 
So it's just kind of an example of where, you know, that that realtor is on my blacklist. We'll never yeah. ever have any interaction one way, shape or form because that was bad. He certainly did not do his client any favors. He he was not providing good service there. That's really too bad. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, now, you know, so as a result of this, you know, you've given us some really good information here today, Claire. Are you open to people giving you a call? We've got your phone number and everything up on the screen here. Are you okay if people call you, you know, if they're in the process of looking at stuff so they have an idea of get them how to get themselves off and running in the right direction? Absolutely. I'm more than happy to do that. When you call into that number, any of my staff can schedule a time in my calendar for us to chat. That initial discussion, I usually allow a good 20 minutes to half an hour just to really get a, an idea of what you're looking for and what the options are we can provide. Always wanting to make sure we can add value. You might already have an amazing relationship with a mortgage broker or your own bank and not require our services, but more than happy to see if there are other opportunities to grow your portfolio. So if you call in, just ask to make an appointment with, with myself and we'll set up a, uh, a discussion to get the ball rolling and see if we can help grow your portfolio together. Okay, that sounds great. That's great. Well, I'm going to uh, open it up to see, are there any questions, uh, Yerick? Are you still there? Are there any questions that anyone has for Claire? She's given us such great information today on this call. There are, some there are questions from Joe. Awesome. Do you want me to read from them Joe. out and then answer them? Does that sound good? Yep. Can you? Awesome. So, uh, so Joe's got one question, which is, can I explain syndicated mortgages and if they're a viable method to finance smaller deals, if a few investors have, say, $20,000 each? So a syndicate mortgage is where you have multiple investors that are going to do one mortgage on one piece of real estate. So multiple investors, one mortgage, one piece of real estate. So, for example, Shelley and I, we both have $50,000 each. We have a borrower that wants 100. Then Shelley and I will do a syndicate mortgage and we'll both send our 50000 to the lawyer one mortgage will be registered on title in both our names or our corporations, and we will each receive 50% of the monthly payment, and then obviously our principal back plus the interest at the end. So we're both registered in equal position, and we're basically kind of pooling our money together to invest in one mortgage transaction. Now, there is to answer the question is, is it a viable method to, you know, for investors that have like 20,000 each? I'm going to say it depends because it depends on so many different things. Uh, number one, where is their money? So if they have cash, then doing it in small amounts is not too bad, uh, except for one thing. The, there'll be one lawyer to represent the borrower. And then if it's Shelley and I, for example, and we both have 50,000 each, we are both going to need uh, independent legal advice. So Shelley and I are both going to have to engage a lawyer and that lawyer's fees will be paid for by the borrower. Now, if it's 50,000 or less, we can actually all use the same lawyer 
as long as the lawyer is comfortable with us doing that. But what if it's, you know, me, uh, Joe and Shelley and, oh, let's throw in, you know, Mark and Betty. So now there's five of us and we all want to put in 20,000 each to raise that same 100,000. Now we have five lawyers. We all have one each for our independent legal advice and we have one borrower. So the long and short of it is the smaller the amount, the richer lawyers get. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> because everyone needs, you know, that independent legal advice. Um, it's typically, if it's short term, it's just way too complicated. But typically, it's much easier to, you know, maybe do a joint venture partner agreement instead. And then the 20K is provided, um, you know, directly to the borrower through the lawyer to close the transaction. Um, and I don't want it to sound like I want to, like, get lawyers out of the pictures, but... Small amounts, multiple investors, it just might cost the borrower so much money, it's not worth it. As opposed to, you know, one lawyer for the borrower, one for the lender, 100K, you're done, as opposed to all the little amounts. Typically, syndicates are created when we're doing big development projects. You want to raise half a million, a million, five million, then syndicates can come together really well. And typically, you know, people are now using their RSPs, their Lira, and their TFSA. So I know that's a long-winded way of answering the question, but bottom line is, typically, the smaller the amount, the larger the number of investors, the less it's worthwhile for the borrower. Okay, good. Good. And then, Any other questions? There's another one for Joe. Do you want me to ask, ask that one as well? Um, so he says, um, you always hear how different banks allow you different amounts of mortgages to be held personally. Um, can I explain what the different levels are with the different banks and the best way to structure your investments so you can maximize these limits? That's an amazing question. And just like every lender has their different qualifying criteria, you know, that offset or add back or DCR or surplus and deficit. All of them have a different cap. Some will say, uh, we will only allow you to have five properties in your portfolio, period. Even if only one of them with, is with us, the minute you want to buy your sixth one, we don't even want to see you at all. Um, some will say, we'll give you five, but we don't want to have more than two or three million with you. So, I mean, that if someone, if a lender's going, you know, we'll give you a million bucks, that could buy you, you know, 10 properties in, you know, Timmins, or it could buy you one in Calgary or two in Calgary. So, I'll be honest with you, it depends on this, how many properties, how many doors. And then finally, it's also going to be your asset, your liquid asset base reserve. So, if you're over leveraged, some lenders won't give you 200K, let alone 2 million. So, you know, the lenders really like to see you, the more you borrow, the, the, the slightly bigger liquid asset base you have. Typically, they like to see like 25% of your net worth or your portfolio is in some form of liquid asset. So stocks, bonds, shares, TFSA, RSPs to a certain extent, but... I'll be honest with you, I could go through each one, but we'd be here till midnight. Uh, every single lender is different. I don't want to say one thing, though. 
Um, let's, uh, one example, let's assume that you have an account with the big green comfy couch. Now, I can walk into a downtown Calgary, actually a bad example, because uh, downtown Calgary, they're really hungry for business. Um, I could go into the big green comfy couch at a branch in Shaughnessy, in the southeast of Calgary or southwest of Calgary. Uh, busy branch, well established, been there for years. Uh, they've already met their quarterly targets. Uh, you walk in and you want to them to finance your eighth property. The individual that you might meet with might go, oh, my God, I need like eight mortgage statements, eight property tax statements, two years T1 generals, your corporate financials, your bylaws. You're a pain in the back because, you know, you want a small mortgage and you have a big portfolio already that they need to underwrite. And they're already busy and they're already hitting their targets. They might well tell you, sorry, your cat, TD, oh, the green comfy couch can't give you any more mortgages. So that's just that one branch. So sometimes the banks will tell you whatever they think will be acceptable just to get you out of the door. You know, because, you know, you're, you're they don't need your business. Your portfolio's too big with other lenders. They're just not interested. But if I walked into a brand new branch of the big green comfy couch that's wanting to establish a new client base that only has five years to make that branch profitable before it gets shut down, or it's a downtown Calgary branch that's really seeing struggling with commercial vacancy over 25%, etc. That branch is hungry for your business. That person is going to see you coming and go, no, we'll give you whatever you want. Because they're hung, that branch wants your business. So they will say, no, you're fine. We'll give you a couple of million. So I won't lie to you. It doesn't matter what their guideline is. You could get told 10 different answers from the same comfy couch. And that's not just the comfy couch. That's any, any lender, any bank. Okay. Very, kind of very poignant. Very pertinent. <laughs> Yeah. Well, some of these are not short and short answer kind of questions. So <laughs> are there any are there any other questions? Uh, I've got one here. What's what needs to be done if taking a mortgage under a corporate name? So first of all, pre-planning. So, you know, when we have that first discussion or you're planning to start to put properties in a corporate name uh, and get financing in a corporate name, we want to make sure, you know, what are your cost of funds going to be? Which lenders can we utilize and how many? So I won't lie to you. It takes sort of some planning up front. So really wanting to plan so that you're aware of that trade-off I talked about earlier. Um, it could be that the bank that you do most of your banking with will allow you to do four or five. And a good mortgage broker will tell you that and you have the option to either go direct or continue to work with your mortgage broker. It could be that, you know, you maybe you're self-employed and we need to go stated income because you're low, you have very, very low taxable income. And then that discussion about buying in a corporate name is totally different because pretty much it's the sky's the limit because you're already going to have a trade-off because your interest rate is going to be higher because your income is much lower. So therefore, we're going to a different category of lenders. We're going to our equity lenders and it's a different strategy. So I would say before you decide you're going to do corporate name, have a discussion with a good uh, you know, mortgage broker that's going to talk about the different 
you know, types of lenders and also those other things to consider, such as your asset base, your net worth, your acquisition strategy, your exit strategy. How many do you want to buy? What's your capital base right now? Do we need to raise funds and borrow money using other more creative strategies to build an asset base for you? Because, uh, you know, what you don't want to do is have all those additional costs, both professionally with your lawyer, as well as accounting, as well as your annual information returns, as well as, you know, keeping up your minutes and all your other stuff that goes along with having a corporate structure. So another long answer to a question. <laughs> Sorry. But very good, very complete. That's awesome. Um, are there any other questions? Is that it? I, I think that's it. I can't, I can't see any more. Okay. Okay, is there anyone that wants to come on live and ask a question? I handled that, that all the questions were asked by the typing. Okay, all right, sounds great. So, um, so with that, then as Claire had, as we mentioned earlier, all of Claire's contact information is online. She is, thank you so much, Claire. You gave us just a wealth of information today. <laughs> And, you know, again, I am just really impressed with how far you go to service your uh, clients that are coming in. Um, and, you know, as an investor coming in to work with you, I, I feel that you're very, they're in very good hands. Someone that can help give them direction for today, but also into the future to help them grow and build. That is amazing. So thank you so much. You did a great job today. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and um, and some amazing questions. And thank you to Street Smart too. Um, you know, it's it's, it's always a, a pleasure to share and hear other investors' stories and experiences and all the other professionals that are a part of this this event. So, and Shelley, thank you for your time on a Friday afternoon. I really appreciate yeah. uh, appreciate your time as well. So, thank you. Oh, it was great to see you again, Claire. It's uh, been a while since we had a chance to have a visit. Hopefully we get a chance to see each other in person and have coffee or something one of these days soon. Sounds and, like a plan. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Eric. So, uh, again, if anyone has questions, please get a hold of Claire. She's got great information to help you out as you're growing. Thanks, Eric. Take Street Smart Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the new innovative concept of real estate investing. No more expensive courses. No more high-priced mentors taking your money and leaving you without ongoing support. Become a full-time seasoned real estate investor by participating with our already successful team members. Now is the time to stop talking about real estate investing and start doing. Take action. Just ask and we will help you. We promise one thing, no BS. For more info, www.streetsmartrei.com